The show that doesn't grab them by the but does occasionally kick them in the ball. It's the Shaggy Jenkins Show on the Pacifica Radio Network. It's the Shaggy Jenkins Show on the Pacifica Radio Network. Welcome to it. Hi, I'm, of course, your host, a critical thinker, a problem solver, a guy that has been inundated by this week of too much damn news. So much so that if you watch the video cast today, I'd like to call my dress code Surfer Casual. I have literally ran out of stuff to wear. But a guy that is very dapper and from a very windy place will be joining us in a second. Today we've got topics like the shutdown, the border speech, R. Kelly, Kevin Spacey, and more in our Week in Review. Before we get to all of that, hi. Host again, my name's Shaggy Jenkins. You can find me at my website, shaggyjenkins.com, or wherever fine social media is served at Shaggy Live. My correspondent today comes to us from the windy city of Chicago. He is, of course, a radio personality, an outspoken gentleman, and let's just say a guy that possesses a voice infinitesimally better than mine. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Chris Bass. You have overcome, for I am here. Look, you have your voice, I have my voice. We all have different voices. Don't, don't, don't shock it. Put yourself down like that. I'll have, I won't have that, sir. Don't do that. Okay, okay. Well, uh, we got to get into some of our stories of the day. And I want to start with Donald Trump and this weird crisis that he is trying to manufacture along the south border. Now, here's the thing. Uh, Chris, when we look into sort of the uh, facts of the story and things that, you know, actually pertain to reality, the numbers that they're quoting in the GOP are absolutely inflated. They don't come from the right sources. And some of the things that they're saying about this crisis sounds a little racist and xenophobic. Have I missed anything in the playbook so far? No, you haven't. When I saw the diatribe, of the uh, address of the nation, the one thing I noticed off the bat was a fear tactics that came off, uh, blaming Democrats for the government shutdown and trying to create an emotional response from people. Now, let me say this up front about human trafficking. He's absolutely correct. I mean, that's the whole conversation we get into later, but he used it as a way to uh, continue to push the border wall. And so if you think about it, if you're in a secure place and want to stay secure, you want to make sure to sell it. Let everybody know that the, the bad people that are trying to get in, if you had this border wall, you'd be protected. So you use type of fear tactics to further your cause. But I think he used it just to um, continue the fact that he wants his border wall so bad, he'll do anything to get that. Okay, because this is the thing that... I kind of have been hearing as far as a trend from a lot of the mainstream media and the, 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 the talker shows. And, and this is the funny thing, not just in this country, but the UK as well. A lot of people said that what Donald Trump, in fact, did was bloviate, fearmonger, but there wasn't any actual substantive news or anything that an actual news organization could report as newsworthy during his speech. So in if you're looking at this as a he was doing this to kind of win the argument, who was his target audience? His target audience remained his fan base. That's why I call it the, the core 
Trump supporters. This man could do no wrong. That's who he's playing to. And also, he's playing to um, Ann Coulter and Rush Limbaugh. That's where he gets his cues from. So you got to remember, remember Sean Hannity being the Trump whisperer? Now we have uh, Man Coulter, I'm sorry, Ann Coulter, and now we have uh, Rush Limbaugh. The um, almost kind of like a, a Mount Rushmore of conservative think tankers, quote unquote, that he relies on. Because he considers himself, as far as I'm concerned, Shaggy, a, still a media superstar in his mind. I think the whole thing about the presidency is just a way for him to exalt power and divvy out the privileges. But in his mind, he's still on reality TV. And so if you think about it, having Sean Hannity as the person you call every night to give you your binky and to make sure you tuck to bed at night every time, why not have other conservative pundits to be a part of that same think tank? So he played mostly to that base of core supporters. You know, and this is the thing. If you're trying to win this debate, right now you have a Democratic-controlled House. You would structure your argue, argument, if you were a smart person, about, okay, look, I understand that um, Democrats don't want to give me this, so let me plead my case not just to the American people, not just to my base, which is exactly what he did. He kind of went for the Hannity's and the people already—how do you say this? He was preaching to the already faithful during that, you know, that kind of exchange. And he kind of needed to, right. to have a bridge the gap, uh, a jump the divide kind of message. But is Donald Trump capable of that type of messaging? No. No, he's not. Um, he cannot— Think for himself. He must take his cues from others. Going back to what we said about the Sean Hannity and Coulter and Rush Limbaugh uh, tree that he relies on. Fox News, as we now see documented, is his only source of information. He doesn't look at anything else. He is in his own bubble, his own world. So from that perspective, how can you justify talking to someone who's already jaded it is mindset. You cannot. A perfect example. When we look at the meeting that they had today, for example, uh, going back to Trump talking to uh, House Speaker Pelosi and Senator Majority Leader Schumer, Schumer asked him the following. I made sure I want to get the exact quote on this. I want you to hear this. Schumer asked him, why won't you open the government and stop hurting people? Trump's response was, because then you won't give me what I want. This, now look at the language that he used. Give me what I want. Come on now. Now, we already had a, an episode this week on the show where we talked about one of the 10 most dangerous uh, word phrases that Donald Trump could hear, which is, uh, he's not hurting the right people. And that was kind of a, a quote from one of his, his base that, that, that says that, look, we elected him to hurt Immigrants. We elected him to hurt China. We elected him to hurt old Canada and the Mexicans. But he's hurting us instead. So when Donald Trump goes out there to kind of sell this message, you know, and, and he's talking to his faithful base, one of the things that you have to consider that this week has shown is that even within the GOP and this wall argument, People like Murkowski out of out of um, Alaska, who is in the House of Representatives, basically, uh, actually, she's Senator Murkowski, isn't she? 
Yes, she is. Okay. Yeah, she is. Yes, Senator Lisa McCaffrey. Right. Yeah. So she's basically saying we need to stop this BS and get the government working again. And <sighs> Chris, in the past, she's always kind of, even if she's been on the fence, went along with the Trump agenda. So now that the faithful along his home party are starting to divide themselves and go away, and Donald Trump is having a, a little bit of difficulty in dealing with people like Pelosi and Schumer, is he going to have a lot of alliance inside of the Senate and enough of alliance to keep the government shut down till, like you said, he makes Schumer give him what he wants? Time will tell because we only have Three senators, you mentioned before about Senator Lisa McCurski out of Alaska, uh, Senator Susan Collins out of Maine, and Senator Cory Gardner out of Colorado. Those three are on record saying they have divided with the president, saying we must get the situation taken care of to crack and stop the shutdown. It's going to take more than three. I applaud the three, but it's going to take higher numbers. It has to be a complete divide for the GOP to get the message that, okay, last I checked, if you, if because of you're a Democrat or Republican, you still need to get paid. You still need a check. So it affects everybody. And of course, it's affecting the people that concerns the GOP, the constituents, the people who voted these people into office. They are struggling. They cannot pay their mortgage, pay their bills, take care of their families. They can't do it. And so this is across the board. But yet, he, being Trump, diverge from that and start this border wall situation. So, in other words, you not getting a check doesn't mean anything. This man, going back to 45, what I call now individual zero, he had the nerve to say that, well, there's people out there who are not getting a check and support me. Now, I'm not saying that's not possible, but in reality, I don't think so. Yeah, because... <sighs> I, I've tried to get on Twitter because one of the statements that Donald Trump made this week was if you get on Twitter and, and, and you look at the people that are responding to my tweets about how, how I'm standing up for security, you will see so much support. And, and this is the thing. I tried to fact check this and it's not going to surprise you, Chris. Um, when we were looking into whether or not there was a huge amount of support for the president. There wasn't. So I, I kind of got to ask you, if he's now lying about stuff that any dumb idiot with a podcast and a radio show built into a shack somewhere in Pukalani, Maui, perhaps, can fact check you that easily, how solid is Donald Trump's arguments? And how much are people going to, especially the GOP, use those as a foundation to support his border walled government shutdown agenda? First and foremost, Shaggy, he lies about everything. Everything comes out of his mouth is a lie. Once again, my analogy has been for the standard. When you're in a universe, when he was uh, in the private sector, uh, being a so-called businessman, and you have yes people around you saying yes, Mr. Trump, no, Mr. Trump, but mostly yes, and everything you say is not fact-checked. You are the boss. You know, you are the grand poobah. Everything that comes your way is going to go through you. So nobody facts checks you. Now he's in a position where everything he says is critical. He's in the, also the highest land, you know, in this country. Everything you say is going to be taken seriously. But he don't see it like that because in his world, we're just numbers, we're just peons, and he's the king of all everything, and we're just here to serve him. 
And when he's fact-checked or when he's confronted with facts, he tells other lies or he starts to go, as they say, start going low and come at you personally. That's what he does. He has these temper tantrums, which I totally agree with Chuck Schumer on this. You cannot install temper tantrums when you're dealing with the American public. Again, people are not being paid. The numbers real quick, NBC News reported the following. 420,000 workers without pay and 380,000 are furloughed. So again, these people are struggling, but in his world, they're supporting him. Now, this is the thing that I kind of want to bring up about all of those numbers, because when we're talking about the press and we're talking about the American public, a lot of people really were looking among, you know, not for guys like me to respond to it, but we're looking towards the Democrats to have a comprehensive and very valid point-by-point dissection of the president's argument. But in their address, um, Lurch and Auntie Nancy there, because I don't know what's going on with the lighting of Chuck Schumer lately, but... Um, the thing is... He is caught that, that too, honey. Yeah, I saw that. <laughs> I, I, I don't want to say that he's a an imposing figure, but once again, if you are looking like for a J.J. Abrams-type Adams Family relaunch... Chuck Schumer mm. is your lurch. You rang. You rang. Uh, this is the thing, though. Uh, in their response, they, I don't want to say didn't make a good enough case, but definitely, and I want to see if you agree or disagree, Chris, when we talk about the Democrats' response to Trump's border speech, did they do an effective counter-messaging uh, job? It could have been stronger. I thought it was a little bit weak at times. I know they did their best to, I guess, uh, approach it from a, a two-quarterback position, but they didn't make the touchdown, as far as I was concerned. They they tried. It was close, but no cigar. So you had to go all the way with it. I, could, I, I felt that, don't get me wrong, the points I took out of it was uh, that they mentioned about appealing to fear, not fact. We're absolutely correct about that when it came to the president's uh, address. It, it could have been more... I would say the approach could have been, you only have a lot of a time to anyway, you know, when you do these type of responses, some are longer, some are short. But if they had more of a, a fact situation where they're able to itemize certain positions more, it could have came off uh, more polished, uh, in my opinion. Well, let's go through some of the things that they, um, they had said, because when we talk about some of their counter arguments, uh, the, the the first argument was, of course, that they are doing everything that they can to get the government open again. And when we talk about democratic efforts to get the government open again, Chris, I, I, I kind of want to have a, a quick little thing here. Are they actually doing an effective job of getting the government open? I think they're trying. I mean, again, it's going to take a lot of uh, person power to get this done and to be more effective. So you just can't skirt around the issue. You have to attack the issue head on. And the thing about Trump is that whether on a bad day, which I think is a lot of bad days, people are mesmerized by what he say, whether you agree with it or disagree with it. And I think that um, Schumer and Pelosi, they have to find a way to galvanize their point more. And don't be wrong, they are who they are 
and they're not as dogmatic as the president is. We got to find some sort of lighting in a bottle to get the message, of course, to be bipartisan. And it has to be a more of a strength based approach and not a laid back approach. Yeah. Now, this is the thing, too, is Democrats, when you talk about a laid back approach, they're they're basically accusing the GOP and Donald Trump of using xenophobic, racist, and, and really kind of intimidating message to talk about immigrants. And and the Democrats have kind of came forward and said, well, look, actually immigrants aren't the problem when it comes to crime in the United States. How much root of that, I mean, for the casual listener, how much of that is rooted in actual truth? It's rooted in actual truth, some of it, but again, it's the presentation of how it is. If you don't come across it from a racist point of view and an actual point of view, the, 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 the message is these people have to be people of color and show data of why this is, not the fact that you should fear all people of color, black Americans, brown Americans, whoever. When you use that approach of it, the message is completely you know, changed. But if you do from the standpoint of of data, of information that is true, then the message comes off uh, differently altogether. Now, uh, uh, two other things that the Democrats kind of called the president on was <laughs> this Mexico will pay for the wall kind of rhetoric. And, and Chris, time and time again, when we've talked about the, 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 the whole who will pay for it model, Donald Trump keeps saying— Eventually, Mexico will pay for it, but we need to start the, the bill now. Is Mexico ever going to pay for this thing? No. No, they're not. And remember, he campaigned on that. He kept saying this wall is going to be built by Mexico. It won't come out of our pockets. Everything will be all right. He ran on that. So now there's about a 180 about face and saying, well, it'll come from other sources. It'll come from here or other places. We'll shift the money around and make sure the wall gets up, whether it's steel or concrete. It doesn't matter. I mean, again, he is fixated on this wall situation, and he's changed the rhetoric from campaigning Trump to President mm -hmm. Trump. Yeah, because the, the the thing that we kind of learned in news stories over this week is that this whole wall rhetoric, this thing that has shut down the government, actually started as an easy way to get a very simple man, Donald J. Trump, to understand that he had to talk about immigration. But when, when he talks about the size and scope and, and, and scale of this wall, does his numbers ever really add up? No, because he's pulling minutia out of certain body parts that I won't get into. Everything he says has to be taken with not only a grain of salt, but pepper, cayenne pepper, and all types of seasoning because you can't take him seriously. And here's the thing, too. You have to look, just go by human nature. People in the GOP, I know, had to be against this president. There are some, just by, you know, just being human, that you can't agree with everything somebody says, but you stay strong for the party. But it has to be infighting like anything else. But they have a united front when they're in public, behind the scenes. You know, God knows what's said. My point being is that you have a president who not only goes against the opposing people on the other side of the aisle, but his own people. So he's loose cannon from day one. So how can you trust someone of that ilk? 
Well, that's just it, because when we talk about the president's Trump, uh, Trump worthiness, uh, he's very Trump worthy, but trustworthy he may not be. The reason why is because when it comes to this whole border wall argument, time and time again, Donald Trump has said that he has massive amounts of support. Now, you brought up the the, the, um, social support, the laid off furloughed workers support. I kind of want to bring up this support that he says that he has from from members of the president's club. And no, I'm not talking about something that you get into when you have a couple of VIPs in the champagne room. No, the the actual <laughs> club of United States. Okay, so maybe Bill Clinton did spend time in that president's club, but he's also uh, the other kind of president. And Donald Trump kind of said that, look, every living president uh, that, that that is still around has voiced support for this wall and for this immigration agenda. Now, it probably won't surprise you that these presidents are still alive and they have spokespeople. Uh, Guess what they're saying, Chris? Mm, They're saying that he lied? Yes, and this is the thing. (laughs) When we talk about Donald Trump lying, now he's lying about the opinion of past presidents. How dangerous of a route is that to go to try to build a case for your border wall? You know, seeing past presidents, usually the person in office is the person when they're there for four or eight years, it's their time. And you don't, I don't recall too many presidents harking back to the predecessor as many times as Trump has done with Obama, talking about President Obama. And you would think that this is about trying to get an agenda or his time in office historic, uh, making sure that everything is, you know, about him and making sure that whoever is a part of that, I, I dare say cabal, but an administration is looking out for the better interest of the citizens of this country. I don't think so. I think everything is in shambles at the White House, including the president, and there's no clear cut of what's going to happen. But not too many presidents Harking back to their predecessor because that was their time and now it's their time. But this whole all to get a different person. We've never seen them in the office before up until now. Yeah, because I, I, I just wanted to say that in a literal sense, the guy that is the straw man president is kind of grasping mm-hmm. at straws here because usually, and this is the thing. And this is something you got to understand about presidents. Usually if one of them makes a play that is kind of meh, questionable and says, well, you know, I talked to such and such and they said it was a good idea. Uh, politicians are real quick to kind of make lies to fill in the gaps. But this is so funny to me because only in something of this nature where it is such a bad, atrocious kind of public policy to have, Will the presidents mm-hmm. actually come out and make an open rebuttal as they have? Now, Chris, this is the thing. When it comes to these guys, these these former presidents, how long do you think they're just going to let the we didn't support him statement linger out there before each one of them starts to offer their actual thoughts on how immigration policy should be handled? Uh, that's the catch-22, because as the former president, you don't want to go after the current administration. 
and it's um, most likely like a, a kind of like you know, um, and a, 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 a kind of like a tip and a respect to the current uh, presidency. So you may have people come out and say something like, for example, President Obama in his speeches or when he's out um, uh, to the public, he doesn't name Trump by name. You know who he's talking about. I think it's a very clever way of doing it. And other presidents who uh, could go on record and say something, they don't want to do that out of respect to the office. Not so much the man in the office, but the office itself. They still have honor and respect for that. Now, go back to what Trump said about speaking to former presidents. Okay. He pretty much had a discussion in the past or arguments in the past with all of these, for example, we know how you feel about Obama yeah. already, President Obama. You know, so not only that, then he go after uh, George W. Bush, where Trump went after his brother Jeb for years. Uh, Clinton. Yeah. I'll tell you about Bill Clinton. You know, uh, his wife Hillary obviously went after her in the recent 2016 campaign while they were campaigning for the presidency. So he has enemies everywhere. You, you usually find some presidents who are moderate or try to, you know, tote the line. This guy is hated and has been <laughs> discussing all these evil traits to the people I just mentioned. Well, the, the, the thing is, too, is like every single one of them has made speeches deriding some sort of Trump administrative policy. And, and who can forget some of the eulogies? put forward at both John McCain's ceremony last year and former President George H.W. Bush. Yes. George W. Bush famously made a statement about America and fear and, and learning to get over things at his dad's funeral. Now, I got to ask you, as far as, because we've got like 20 seconds here, how powerful is it when you have to use your dad's funeral as a platform to say uh, current president's policy is a little wrong? Yeah, I, I think that was a, a good move to, to do because you have people there who still don't understand why isn't the president speaking? Well, because he doesn't want him, they don't want him to speak because to say something idiotic and desecrate the former president of George H.W. Bush's name and what he meant to the country. So I thought it was a good platform for George H.W. Bush to do. Coming up, when we get back, we'll talk less about dedications and more about defecations. Ooh, it's one of the crappiest stories of the week. The Shaggy Jenkins Show. This is Scientific American's 60 Second Science. I'm Christopher Intagliata. Your genome is sort of like a library, with each gene an instruction manual for making proteins. The bad news is you can't return a book and take out a new edition. But the technique of gene therapy allows you to revise your copy of the book, so to speak, giving you the ability, potentially, to make new and different proteins. Now scientists have experimented with a new way to make text revisions, by inhaling the changes. They tested the concept by having mice breathe in genetic material called messenger RNA, or mRNA. For the test, the mRNA included instructions to manufacture luciferase, the stuff that lights up in fireflies. The researchers packaged the mRNA with a degradable polymer, 
to trick the mice's lung cells into accepting the package. And once the cells gobbled it up, they began to glow, proving that inhaling mRNA is an effective way to kickstart the production of new and novel proteins, like the firefly enzyme. The scientists also repeated the experiment in mice whose cells had been genetically engineered to turn permanently red if they received a copy of mRNA, making it possible to count the proportion of cells affected by a dose. The proof of concept is in the journal Advanced Materials. Of course, the point of all this isn't to make mice glow. Instead, one idea is to use this technique to help cystic fibrosis patients. Because people with CF have a genetic mutation that causes a buildup of sticky mucus in their lungs. Several of the study authors work with a publicly traded biotech company called Translate Bio, and that company is conducting phase 1 and 2 trials to determine if inhaling messenger RNA could provide a genetic fix for cystic fibrosis. Regardless of the particular case of CF, the luciferase example shows that inhalation genetic therapy could be an inspiration. Thanks for listening. For Scientific American's 60 Second Science, I'm Christopher Intagliata. Dig deeper. Remove the hype. Find the facts. It's the Shaggy Jenkins Show on the Pacifica Radio Network. Welcome back to the show. I am your host, Shaggy Jenkins. Oh, God, if you miss any part of the first part of the show, do yourself a favor and go over to our website at shaggyjenkins.com or wherever fine social media is, sir. Follow us at Shaggy Live, and we'll tell you exactly where to go in a good way. But if you're looking for the show, any of the past episodes, or you missed the first part, just find us on Spotify or Stitcher or other great services. All of that information can be found at our website at shaggyjenkins.com. Hi, welcome back to my show. I'm, of course, a critical thinker, a problem solver, a guy outside of the box. My name, Shaggy Jenkins. Joining me from the windy city of Chicago, he is a broadcasting professional, possessor of a velvety voice, and... From what I understand, could possibly be the modern-day Batman of radio. Ladies and gentlemen, give it up for Chris Bass. I like that. I got to get that uh, L.O.C. The yeah. Batman of radio. Very cool. Thank you. I appreciate that. Welcome back to to all of us here on the Shaggy Jenkins Show. Oh, God. Well, you know, it's always like we, we do these warm welcomings right before we take people into the hellish abyss that is today's headlines. And, and of course, we, we have to kind of address something about Trump's border wall argument and about the kind of falsified arguments that we've heard from Mike Pence and Kristen Nelson, director of the uh, Department of Homeland Security. Chris, let's talk a little bit about the real kind of impact and the real sources of human trafficking in the United States. Donald Trump made this a central argument of his we need a wall. But how much of human trafficking would actually be stopped by a border wall? Well, human trafficking does not mean it can be stopped by a border wall because you still have people within the wall that do human trafficking. So it wouldn't matter. I, I think I think you might have a point to a degree, but we have our own crime in our own country. Like any other countries have crime, it's going to happen. And unfortunately in our country, for example, the UN had new reports saying that 23% of all trafficking victims are girls. And once again, myself having two daughters uh, when they were younger, um, you just feared for anything not to happen to them in a general sense, let alone human trafficking. And so when you take that perspective of 
uh, what do we do? I think part of the reason what we could do is you have to put in money for security. Uh, there have been cases I've read over the years where people are just trying to go to the grocery store and they're in the parking lot and the van pulls up and takes women and children, for example. That's the kind of the thing that I was going to bring up here, because a lot of this human trafficking that Donald Trump talks about is actually perpetrated by white men who are American citizens. So mm-hmm. how likely is, is, is it not only just his base, but the American citizens, how likely are we to say all human trafficking is done by brown people? Well, again, it goes back to fear tactics. That goes back to the fear of mind we talked about earlier in the program where you're using a certain example to stoke the flames and, you know, the fires of fear. Uh, yes, in our own country, since we are Americans, he mentioned before about what happens uh, uh, with white males that are doing this. Yeah, the percentage is going to be high because we're in our own country. See, people don't want to sit back and use the sense that is given to them. If you're based on human emotion and not using your mind to think, you can be talked into anything. Now, the UN has worked on um, kind of reporting this to the rest of the world for years and years and years. And and this year, some very interesting statistics and spikes in statistics have become alarmingly true. One is that we're finding that boys' victimhood has kind of went down a percentage point. Uh, in the previous report, it was about 8% of human uh, trafficking was, was young boys. Now it's about 7%. But when it comes to underage girls, the number has risen. And this is the—I the, the, kind of got to ask you, is this statistical or is this kind of reporting? Because according to the U.N., the reason that female numbers are up so high, specifically young teenage girl human trafficking numbers are up, is because mm. people are getting more and more sophisticated and, honestly, just more on the ball with reporting these type of victims. So I, I got to ask, are we seeing a trend where human traffickers are, have increased their actual activity against underage girls or have we just not been talking about it enough for all these years? It's both. Uh, I think that, yeah, I think when, when certain human traffickers are, because understand this, when you are the predator, you have to put everything into motion. You have to set the plan, go over what you're going to do to make this plan a reality. So you have to obviously think and put the thought process into it in order for it to be executed. And you're right. On the flip side of that, it does come up in conversation a lot. It's kind of one of those classic taboo topics. Don't talk about that, which we should because it affects all of us. I, You know what? I'm going to segue right into our next story here, because when we talk about talking about things and specifically talking about victims this week, a lot of people at water coolers online, on Facebook, a lot of people have been having a kind of jaw-dropping or jaw-dropped reaction to the allegations and revelations of the Lifetime series Surviving R. Kelly. Now, this is a, this is kind of a, a unique story because you're a Chicago native, and as such, uh, I think I'm like one of the only shows where it's like, hey, let's talk to an actual person to Chicago, uh, from Chicago about this story. Because this is the thing. 
when we talk about victims, can before we get into the R. Kelly thing at all, let's just talk about the victims themselves. Has this week, through the lens of that documentary, shown us that when it comes to victims of sexual assault, of human trafficking, black minority women are ignored? Yes. Oh, absolutely to be ignored for years. When you talk about, for example, missing people. So once again, not being racist, this is how it plays out. If a teenage or, say, young uh, white American girl or young lady was missing, say, uh, in her, I don't know, early 20s, uh, you see her smiling, the pictures because she's missing, um, a great American, all-American girl type of thing, and it's promoted that way. And it was a, a black female, same age, also very attractive, very pretty. We don't get that story. We don't see it. Unless we go to alternative news sites to find stories like that, that's geared towards, say, black and brown people. But on the national front, no, we don't get it at all. And that's by design, because I believe when it comes to the media, it's like, okay, what can we get more empathy from? Is it about race or is it about trying to find the girl no matter what her race is and unfortunately people still deal with race first this is the thing because i i was trying to think of a good okay actually this is not a good story so there is no good comparison but i was trying to think of a, a, a pop cult, culture reference to kind of frame the way that we treat victims of sexual assault of, of human trafficking if they are a minority female. And you'll understand that the, the big craze besides the whole lifetime R. Kelly thing uh, over the uh -huh. last couple of weeks has been the Sandra Bullock uh, Bird Box uh, Netflix original film. Now, Chris, I gotta ask, are we guilty of living in Sandra Bullock's Bird Box, blindfolds on, when it comes to black women and their victimization? It's not to place blame, you just don't know. If you're not privy to information, you just don't know. Does it make you guilty? Does it make you stupid? You just don't know. If we have more information, say it was equal, where you did see unfortunate uh, a white American you know, young lady that's missing and say a black American young lady that's missing on an equal front or no matter what color they were, or they're missing on, a, on an even plateau, you will be exposed to it. But since you're exposed to one lens, you don't know about the other. And it's not your fault. It's just the fault of where you get information from. Well, there's something interesting that I do want to kind of bring up. And this, this comes because of who and what I am and our perception in America of what happens in minority communities. And this is something very dangerous about white America and their perceptions of, of, of black women. Chris, I'm going to ask your opinion on this before we talk about R. Kelly. And I swear, we're going to talk about this story because, oh my God, I know things. But um, when we talk about <laughs> victimization in America, when we talk about how people treat black women, white America is very guilty of assuming power of a minority female, of saying, oh, the black woman is all-powerful. The black woman doesn't put up with anything. And and, and uh, to that degree, white women kind of in, embody and try to take the traits of black female culture, of, of doing it to feel empowered. Now, are we guilty of ascribing so much power to the black 
female community that we think it's impossible that they can be victimized and hurt? Um, when you look at the, the black female, once again, it depends on how you look at the black female. Uh, say, for example, somebody uh, on one spectrum, of course, former uh, First Lady Michelle Obama, class personified, you know, very dignified. Uh, you know, you look at that as a beacon, depending on who you are. Or you may see the black woman as some uh, sexual woman in heat, uh, which has been known throughout the centuries and, you know, how people look at her from that perspective, too. So depending on how you look at it, either you're going to say, you know, this person is empowered by who they are and what they are, or on the other spectrum, they're just uh, being sexualized and, you know, they're always, you know, uh, sticking, you know, their booties out in videos and things like that. And that's a de that's deterrent as well because you're getting a microcosm of a characterization and not the real thing. That's the thing because this week, and now we're going to get into it, the, the docu-series from Lifetime, uh, Surviving R. Kelly, has kind of given people a different perception uh, of the women that we are talking about. And and the the thing is is R&B music has always been very guilty here and I say this as a former member of the hip hop radio community R&B music has been very very guilty of sexualizing the black woman. And as such it's almost it is almost sickening and this kind of argument was made this week that a lot of people ignored the allegations and rumors of what R. Kelly was doing behind the scenes because his music, hell, it was so good. And you know what? These women, as we see them portrayed in the hip-hop videos and the R&B videos, well, they're just asking for it, and that's probably their culture anyway. And we did a lot of defense for R. Kelly before we knew the full extent of some of the things that he is, is alleged to have done. So, Chris, in, in kind of a, um, a nutshell here, when we talk about the early allegations and, and, and just the world's reaction to the series of, of surviving R. Kelly, have people ever really looked at this man through the this is a person versus this is the artistic product? That's going to be the age-old argument to the end of time to separate the artist from the personal aspect of who he or she is. In this situation with R. Kelly, um, when I was back at WLS as a host producer on radio, uh, this topic was obviously very hot here in Chicago and beyond, and I was doing a story about it, and so I got the source from the persons who's were doing, who were doing the story for the Chicago Sun-Times I got a copy of the tape and I watched the tape and uh, the, it was is three se sexual situations in the copy that I had, which I also returned to the source. Uh, I want to see if it was him. And because I was doing the story and I had guests on the show, I'm not sure it was him. Now in all three sexual situations, it was him. The first two females could be subject to question. They could on the human eye, passed for 18 or older. Mm -hmm. The last one on the tape obviously was a 14-year-old girl, obviously. 
Okay, so this is the part that I can kind of jump in on and act like I know something because I actually, you know that old saying in hip-hop, sometimes you got to know somebody that knows somebody that knows something about it? I have yeah. a friend, and he is on the uh, Jones uh, Jones Radio Network. His name is Rick Party. He's a part of the Rick and Sasha Morning Show. It's a nationally syndicated show. And he, like you, is a Chicago native. One of the things that I kind of noticed is it's on his Facebook feed and his Facebook profile, he put up a story of in the immediate kind of aftermath of the P-tape going out that, that R. Kelly's brother hit up Rick Party and was saying, hey man, my brother kind of wants me to take the rap for this. So on one hand, I got to ask you, did, did surviving R. Kelly teach us that R. Kelly is just a, a, a powerfully charismatic guy? Or did it also kind of teach us that R. Kelly has surrounded himself with enablers and protectors for decades? Again, it's both. Uh, not taking anything away from his talent, uh, when you have people like Michael Jackson and Ron Isley, the Isley brothers, saying how talented and uh, genius level he is, then yes, you have to take it very seriously. So is he owned the 90s. I mean, 90s R&B, you cannot discredit what R. Kelly did. But also, on the flip side of that, we've always heard the rumors, the innuendos, or some people the actual truth about him being a sexual predator. Again, trolling uh, Kenwood Academy, where we both went to high school together, or other high schools, using his fame and fortune as a lure. You can use the same argument for former uh, Penn State assistant coach Jerry Sandusky when he created an atmosphere for boys as the lure for him being a sexual predator to them. You know, the Boys Foundation that he had, uh, putting on various uh, organizations, uh, uh, trying to raise money for uh, women with boys, uh, having slumber parties over his house with boys. So again, the predator sets up this, you know, the elaborate uh, hook to get the prey, quote unquote, to be a part of his world. Well, R. Kelly was a very, and still is a very good predator. And and one of the stories that, that, that came out that was not all about R. Kelly, because honestly, if we wanted to, I could probably sit here and discuss the, all of the stuff in that show ad nauseum, especially this. I remember that when our radio station, and I'm not going to mention the one because it's still a radio station to this day, and I don't want their staff to get in trouble, but we remember back in the infamous P-tape days that our program director decided to make a call and say, man, screw R. Kelly, he's disgusting, he's a monster, pulling all of his music off. Keep in mind, this is the year that the album Best of Both Worlds with Jay-Z came out, which... If you're familiar with it, it was a monster summer hit album. It it was just a monster album. So anybody taking the stand in radio saying, we're not going to play R. Kelly's music at that time would have been very powerful. And you would think that, and especially with me and you being radio veterans, you would think, oh, yeah, of course program directors are going to stand up because a lot of these guys have daughters, have wives, have Basic human decency. You don't need a daughter or a wife to have basic human decency. And and they wanted to pull the songs. And I remember this distinctly and I was working in this hip-hop station. When the week happened, 
that the allegations dropped. RCA record reps were in the program director's office door closed for hours. And this happened station from station, uh, market to market, all across the United States. RCA and Jive Records did not want to lose what was going to be their summer cash cow and as such kind of went to radio stations and if they weren't voluntarily just saying, yeah, man, R. Kelly's the, the ish, man. We're going to keep playing him. They would say something like, oh, R. Kelly sucks, man. I ain't going to play him. And RCA was like, you're not going to have a choice. Either you play R. Kelly or we pull our entire catalog from your station. And Chris, I got to ask, in hindsight, will the public ever hold these record companies liable for the damage and continued influence of R. Kelly in the aftermath of those allegations? Probably not. I think they get a free pass, quote unquote, because they were doing their job. As I said before about that summer, uh, of course, the whole thing, you know, the best of both worlds, you know, him and Jay-Z, and both men were on top of their game during this time. If you notice, you know, Jay-Z, this is himself, R. Kelly immediately, this was going on. And of course, the, the collaboration uh, went to dust. But they get a free pass because, you know, as, uh, as an entity of playing music, entertaining the public, their job is to do just that. They were not going to let the goose lay the golden eggs in R. Kelly get away in that situation because he was about to make buku money for all of them. So in hindsight, hey, I was just doing my job. My job was not to talk about his personal life, his professional life as an R&B performer. Mm. Well, this is just it, because as long as we're talking about victims of sexual assault and human trafficking, this week had one of the most inspiring stories to come out. And, and what I mean is I want to talk a little bit about the Centoya story. Okay. Now, if you've been following any of the headlines around victims of sexual assault and victims of human trafficking, one of the most gripping stories that came out over the last two weeks is of a young woman who was a victim of sexual trafficking, a victim of kidnapping, killed her assailant in self-defense and was sentenced to 51 years in jail. America lost their mind when this came out. But, Chris, today we have good news, don't we? We have great news. Uh, being incarcerated for 15 years, uh, she is now granted clemency, which is justice working in its finest form. And we all know about the system being what it is, being gridlocked, uh, not being fair sometimes, or justice, uh, the lady, you know, with the, you know, scales being maybe too blind. But now it works because uh, here's a person who is defending themselves. And not too many people can say that they got a chance to defeat or the situation kill for survival of their predator. You have women who unfortunately go through this and still have the scars. I mean, obviously she will too. But the finality of the whole thing is about her trying to survive. And what if she didn't do it? What if, for example... The predator stayed alive, and we never would have heard of her. She could have still been in human trafficking. So things happen for a series of events for a reason, but the fact that she was granted clemency shows you, again, justice working as it should. 
And when we're talking about justice, women, and we talked about this in basically a lot of the segment of the show today, minority women hardly ever get leniency from the law. And, and specifically clemency, you have to have a friend like Kim Kardashian go to Donald Trump's house to get you kind of a clemency if you're a minority female. But what this story really kind of says, at least as far as a societal trend, is, and, and it's kind of a hopeful message, Chris, agree or disagree, um, is there hope now that if you are a victim, and you enact revenge against the person that is victimizing you, that the justice system will actually treat you fairly. See, now you get into murky territory because the crime has been committed of actually taking somebody's life. So again, through the courts and through the justice system, you have to prove and say without a shadow of a doubt that you were a part of a drug trafficking situation or a part of an abuse situation where you had no other choice but to kill the person that was brutalizing you. So that's going to be literally a case-by-case basis. Hope is sometimes all we have left. So in this situation with her, it does give you hope that hopefully, obviously this is the president's in the court system, that you can relate to this case if you're a lawyer for future cases as a deadman to say, this happened with Ms. Brown and maybe my client had the exact same reasons for doing what she did. Now, Keep in mind, when we talk about Centoya, uh, Centoya Brown, she is an exemplary, what's considered a model prisoner. She has taken a lot of steps during her incarceration, not only to finish her high school diploma, but to also kind of rebuild the, the, the fractured psyche that this terrible, terrible experience kind of gave her. So... When we talk about this clemency, this clemency, a lot of people are like, yay, we're finally believing the victims in the United States. But let's not forget the extraordinary efforts that she had to go through to receive this. And it also took her 15 years in the pursuit of justice. So when we talk about human trafficking in the United States, we talked about it at the first segment with, with the UN and things like that. Chris, the kind of the, the sad statement about this is that it's not going to happen more often. Agree? Absolutely. Um, when we get more information and it's brought to the forefront and it's not taboo, it becomes regular dialogue. You will see progression on all sides. Once we know more about this, and once again, those of us who know about it, well, probably the small percentage, but again, if you do stories, if say you do docu-series on this, for example, about human trafficking, I'm sure it's done, obviously been done already, but if it has more exposure, then we'll see more light for the subject and not brought from the dark, they'll be into the light and people will be more receptive to help make change. Yeah, because this is kind of the interesting dynamic that this week has kind of said, too. Remember how I mentioned R. Kelly earlier? See, Centoya Brown has been playing the good girl for her whole life, but society has ascribed her the bad girl role, being that she is a minority female. And we have, let's just be honest, R. Kelly that embraced his whole pedophilic thing with the Pied Piper of R&B moniker that he took on. And another person that popped up in the news this week for sexual assault, Kevin Spacey, who typically plays bad villainous characters. 
Chris, is this the week? Oh, God, and we've only got like a, a minute to go here. Is this the mm. week that, that we have proven if you play a bad person or have a bad perception, oh, God, yes or no, you can get away with actually being a bad person? You can try, you know, but as Scooby-Doo once said, rock the ruck. Rock the ruck, everybody. Guys, we have got to go. So thank you for joining our show in the Weekend Review. Join us next week as we do this again. God hoping is better news. Until next time, love you, mean it, Katie, and bye.